You've seen the headlines, bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash Bonds. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. China's tech behemoth Huawei finds itself embroiled in the country's trade war with America. When our journalists sat down with the firm's founder, he mused about a possible solution that is as bold as it is surprising. The increasing entwinement of American and Chinese manufacturing is also the subject of a new documentary called American Factory. It showcases the clashes of work culture and ideology that are exposed when a Chinese firm sets up shop in Ohio. And in the small hours tonight, climate activists will try to shut down Europe's busiest airport using diddy little drones. Heathrow Paws, as they're called, are aiming more for disruption than danger, but their approach reveals the growing threat of airports' most dreaded arrivals. America has been pressing its allies not to use Huawei's equipment as next-generation 5G mobile networks are being rolled out worldwide. In May, American companies were barred from selling components and software to the firm on the grounds that it posed a national security risk. All this spells big trouble for Huawei. Much of its profits come from the global sale of smartphones. But its new model is launching in a week, and its Android operating system, developed by Google, will be stripped back. It won't have apps such as Google Maps and YouTube, or the Google Play Store, where the likes of WhatsApp and Instagram are available. It's more than enough to worry Huawei's founder and chief executive, Ren Zhongfei. But in an interview with The Economist, the billionaire revealed a bold idea he thinks could rescue the company. So a group of journalists from The Economist were invited to the headquarters of Huawei, arguably one of the world's most controversial companies, to interview their founder and boss, Ren Zhongfei. David Rennie is our Beijing bureau chief. And during this interview, he dropped a bit of a bombshell. He came up with this very dramatic suggestion about one way that you could resolve some of the real issues that the Americans have in terms of trusting Huawei and how he thinks he could get past that. So what was the the scene of of the meeting like? It's a pretty spectacular moment when you enter Huawei headquarters. There's actually more than one campus. But Ren Zhongfei, who may or may not be a sort of sinister patsy for Chinese intelligence, as his critics in America say, he is also clearly a self-made billionaire with a lot of self-confidence and a very distinctive taste in architecture and distinctive dress sense. So you go there and each building is more palatial than the next. The room where we actually interviewed him was an enormous Greek hall with a model of a bit of the Parthenon, large columns, sort of echoing marble and chandeliers. 
<laughs> so Mr. Ren is a big fan of European history and art. So there are paintings of the coronation of Napoleon and enormous kind of classical uh, mosaics and, and scenes. Uh, this is bought from uh, uh, Belgium. This is the Battle of Waterloo. Right opposite us when we were doing the interview was a very large blow-up photograph of a reenactment of the Battle of Waterloo. And in fact, I, I thanked him for offering us something that would make British visitors happy. <laughs> our delegation was Patrick Fowles, our business affairs editor, Stephanie Studer, our China business correspondent, Hal Hodson, our Asia tech correspondent, and me. And on the Huawei side, you'll hear Ren Zhangfei, who's a kind of man in his 70s with... Uh, he was actually wearing a kind of bright red jacket uh, and his interpreter. So how did the interview go? Huawei's confrontation with America matters clearly enormously to Huawei. So we asked him about the effect on his revenues and you know the problems he has now because Huawei can't buy some very, very important components from America. But we also wanted to get to the fact that the confrontation between America and Huawei is really part of a much, much bigger confrontation between America and China. And in fact, if you take a step back beyond that, it's a really interesting early indicator of the fact that as countries are trading these very high-tech products that require a kind of really deep level of trust because they're, you know, medical devices or the chips that keep planes in the air or the telephones that can control your entire life. At a time when America and China in particular don't trust each other at all, that's in danger of breaking globalization. So I guess one of the core issues that we wanted to get to with Ren Zhengfei, this incredibly kind of controversial bogeyman in Washington, D.C., was how could you get past this complete absence of trust, particularly with uh, 5G mobile phone technology? Remember, any number of American leaders have been going around the world leaning on America's allies not to let Chinese companies, starting with Huawei, build 5G networks on the grounds that that would be an appallingly dangerous thing to do. So fairly early on in the interview, my colleague Patrick Fowles asked Ren Zhengfei, is there a way for Huawei to get over this problem that the Americans in particular don't think Huawei should be allowed to build 5G networks? Could Mr. Ren talk a bit about the radical options to change the structure of the company that might help rebuild trust? Mr. Ren's response was pretty dramatic. We are open to the option of transferring technology, not part of it, but the whole of it, to some Western companies or countries. It's about the licensing of technology as well as production techniques. So what does Mr. Ren mean by that, licensing all of, of Huawei's technologies? So there's a lot that goes into a 5G mobile phone network. It's not just the kind of the hardware and the base stations, but it's also the, the software, the very sort of structure that Huawei has actually got a bit of a lead on in terms of uh, rolling out this super fast internet that people get through their mobile phones. He is willing to sell everything, the software, the hardware, the whole kind of intellectual property behind it to a foreign company, probably an American company would be smart, and then they would be open to compete with him around the world. And, and you say that this was, this was a, a dramatic suggestion, a, a radical one. 
This would be a big business deal. I mean, you're talking, you know, $10 billion at least. But actually, what's really interesting is you've got a business leader from China coming up with a pragmatic solution to a conundrum that politicians have not been able to solve. And that conundrum, in a nutshell, is that America does not trust China enough to let China build something as sensitive as a 5G network. So what Ren Zhangfei is saying is, okay, fine. You build it, and I'll sell you everything I have done until now so that you can compete with me. But the question is, I suppose, whether it would work if the idea here is to reset the clock on global trade relations just from one business. Do you think that's tenable? So it is true that America is a bit stuck because America has been going around the world asking allies not to let Chinese companies help them build 5G, and they have not been getting a very warm response, even from countries like the UK, who are very ambivalent about kicking companies like Huawei completely out because Huawei makes, you know, good, cheap kit. I mean, the, the, the bottom line is that even if this doesn't happen, the politicians have not come up with anything that looks anywhere near large enough and bold enough and radical enough to get past this trust shortage. And this businessman from China has come up with something that could work. So he's currently doing better than the politicians. But if there's been a question as to the degree to which Mr. Ren is in the pocket of the party, then perhaps this is the party exerting its influence. This this is actually a politician's or some politician's idea. The thing about China and the Communist Party and big businesses is it's too much to say that this is the Communist Party has a kind of secret control room, like kind of Bond villains, where they're just directing businesses to do their bidding day in, day out. It's much more that the Communist Party has a veto over what big, powerful, sensitive companies do. So I think the idea that Huawei would do this against the wishes of the Communist Party is not serious. You know, the Communist Party has a veto over everything important that happens in China. But, you know, the Communist Party isn't a kind of, as I say, isn't a layer of Bond villains directing everything that happens in China. I think this is his idea. And looking around the table, you could see his own senior aides kind of rolling their eyes a bit at the fact that the big guy was saying stuff that is very, very early stage. Well, you described Mr. Ren as a, a very, very self-confident man. He seems then quite confident that he, can, he could pull this off? He is. And in fact, when we were saying our goodbyes, he joked that if we wanted to know if Huawei can survive, we'd be welcome to go back and see him at the same time next year. Thank you very much for, for your time. <laughs> You've been uh, very uh, generous with your time and, and with your answers. And so do you think then that you'll be back this time next year? Maybe, and when I do, maybe there'll be an American sitting next to him who's his business partner in 5G. David, thank you very much for your time. Not at all. To hear the full interview, listen to our sister show, The Economist Asks, out next Friday. Huawei represents the technological front in a broader battle between China and America, a battle that draws in both countries' firms, factories, and farmers. In America, the rhetoric is familiar. China's rise costs jobs at home. We are now making it clear to China that after years of targeting our industries and stealing our intellectual property, the theft of American jobs and wealth has come to an end. Critics of China accuse big American companies of moving production overseas to cash in on cheap Chinese labor. But what happens when the money flows the other way? 
American Factory is a new documentary on Netflix. Samaya Keynes is The Economist's U.S. economics editor. And it's about a former General Motors factory, and it closed in 2008. We stand here today um, with a plant that's closing, with a, a, a deep, rich history. and With uh, loss of 2,000 jobs or so. And the film is about a Chinese company that buys the building and reopens a glass manufacturing plant. And so why does this film focus on this particular factory? I think partly it was to do with the fact that you know the filmmakers were local, but also they had amazing access to this company called Fu Yao Glass Industry Group as it bought this building and got it up and running. And it's run by... This chairman is called Chairman Kao De Wang, and he's just this amazing character. So that you see in the film, he comes in and, and talks to all the staff as the factory is opening, and he almost sounds idealistic. He he comes in, he he tells the Chinese staff that that the most important thing is not how much money they make, but it's it's about how this is going to change American views of China. So these workers are almost like ambassadors for for China. So this isn't the sort of the standard picture of Chinese business in America, right? This is, this is something different. Yeah, so around around that time, there was a big surge in investment from China to America. But actually, most of that investment came in the form of Chinese money buying up existing companies, existing you know equipment, etc. So this is actually very unusual in that it was pretty much from the ground up, apart from the shell of a building. So, so how did it go once once the the company was up on its feet? Well, not entirely smoothly, as the film describes. The factory went into full production in October of 2016. But very quickly, you see a whole host of problems emerge. So there are pressures from some workers to form a union. The Chinese leadership does not like this at all. There are concerns over health and safety. The film interviews John, who is who is the safety director at the plant. Everybody at every level will say, we really, really, really want to be safe. But safe doesn't pay the bills. You see employees, you know, quite, quite scared in some cases for their safety, refusing to do things that they're being told to do. The room we work in, it's only one way in, no doors on the opposite side. If a fire breaks out, that's like being trapped. And then finally, you have the Chinese concerns about the productivity of the plant. So you get the impression that for all this grand talk about this factory improving U.S.-China relations, actually, no, they really do care about the money. They were expecting the factory to be profitable very quickly, and it's not. You see that there are these tensions about the fact that the company isn't making as much money as they thought. And so what's, what's at the root of, of these conflicts, do you think? Is this just a sort of a, a clash of working cultures? So, so first of all, I should say that it wasn't all tension. And the film is actually really lovely for showing, you know, the friendships that grow between the Chinese and the American workers. And, and the other thing to say is that some of these problems are not really to do with the fact that it's a Chinese company that has come in and, and, and bought this plant much more generally, unionization in, in manufacturing has, has been falling. There are complaints about wages, but 
wages at a new plant for entry-level workers are just not going to be as good these days as they were back at the old General Motors plant when you had you know, decades of, of unionization. That all said, you know, as you alluded to, there are some, some fairly big differences. There are some cultural differences. So you, you see these really funny introductions to American culture that the Chinese workers, as a given, they're told that you know, the American workers need praise. Donkeys like to be touched in the direction that the hair grows, otherwise they'll kick you. So partly you're seeing these different expectations, different norms of how you know the workplace works. In America, if you're running a plant and you expect a worker to just jump on a conveyor belt to fix something while the conveyor belt is still moving, that's not going to work, right? That kind of thing might happen in China, but it's going to be a shock when you find out in America that American employees are not willing to do that. And so you just see repeated examples of these different expectations. One Chinese employee shows the burn marks on his arm almost proudly. So, so after these sort of initial clashes, how, how did things work out at the plant? You see the, the Chinese owners change their tack. So workers get offered a pay rise. And, and towards the very end of the film, you see that the plant does become profitable. They also squash the, the drive towards unionization. The film ends on a related and, and really interesting note, which is that increasingly they are turning to robots to do this, this dangerous work. So instead of having you know, these, these workers angling for better working conditions and better pay, now they have a very compliant robot. At the beginning of the film, there's this, this grand hope that the plant is going to deliver all these jobs, it's going to be the saving of this community. And then over the course of the film, you, you find out that these jobs are not all they're cracked up to be. But by the end, you're, you're left wondering how much longer even those jobs are going to stay. And that really speaks to the, the big, big point of this film, which is essentially all about the, the power imbalance between these workers and, and the management. If these workers are, are too vocal about the problems, then they're competing with a robot. Maybe they're competing with workers overseas. That's the, the new American factory. Samaya, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Businesses have long had to cope with the impact of business cycles. Now, they must address not just cycles, but cyclones. Storms spin up seemingly out of nowhere, irrespective of the ups and downs of the overall economy. Read what global executives are doing to mitigate these risks and seize their opportunities in the fifth annual Alex Partners Disruption Index at disruption.alexpartners.com. London's Heathrow Airport is the busiest in Europe. 1,300 flights come in and out every day. But tomorrow, it could be a lot quieter. Environmental activists are planning to fly toy drones near the airport, hoping to ground flights. They're protesting against plans for a third runway at Heathrow and to draw attention to climate change. Their disruption will be a tiny drop in the ocean compared to the upheaval that's coming. Heathrow Pause 
an offshoot of a pressure group called Extinction Rebellion, says that the drones should be disruptive but not dangerous. Well, the first thing to say is that it's going to be 100% safe. This is an example of one of the drones that's going to be flown. It's incredibly light, it's really tiny, and it will be flown at head height, six feet off the ground. They're planning to exploit a loophole in Heathrow's protocol that says if any drones are flown within five kilometers of the airport, no planes can take off or land. It used to take some effort to shut down an airport. Leo Morani is The Economist's roving Britain correspondent. About 25 years ago, the IRA fired motor rounds into Heathrow Airport in three separate days over the course of a week and didn't really achieve very much. You know, There wasn't much disruption. The airport was only closed for a few hours. Nobody died. Even a plane carrying the Queen managed to touch down on a quiet day between two sets of attacks. And how hard is it to shut down an airport now? The barriers to entry for shutting down an airport have collapsed. Uh, once you'd need to figure out how to make motor get close enough to Heathrow to chuck it in on the runway or whatever, now you buy a drone for under 100 quid on Amazon and fly it around and cause havoc. Like exactly what happened at Gatwick this Christmas. Exactly. There were several reports of a drone sighting around Christmas. It lasted a couple of days. There was even controversy over whether or not there really was a drone. Experts are reasonably convinced there was. But it doesn't really matter. If you are worried about a drone anywhere near your airspace, it is much safer to shut it down. A drone can have devastating effects on an aircraft, and the risks to human life are just too great. But if they pose such a dire risk, then why not just get them out of the sky? It's a fair question. The answer, it's not actually that easy. I mean, the obvious thing to do would be to shoot them out of the sky, right? Except you don't want to go around shooting projectiles anywhere near an airport. If you miss where that projectile lands, we don't know. If you hit it, the drone itself could fall on the runway, it could fall on an airplane, it could fall on a person. It's very dangerous. There are other ways that don't involve shooting things into the sky near an airport. You might say, why don't we jam the thing? You can't really. Drones operate in the same radio frequency as consumer Wi-Fi, so you'd be disrupting a huge amount of local networks. They use the same GPS as everyone else. There are also some low-tech solutions. One is nets. You could shoot a net up into the sky and try to capture the thing. One airport, at least, has eagles, which are trained to take down a drone. And they're workable solutions if you have one drone or two drone or three drones. They don't quite work if you're swarmed by drones. If you have 100 drones in there, which is what might happen in this protest, three eagles are going to be pretty pointless. But, I mean, ultimately, these things are, are cheap toys. How can, it, how can this be such a hard problem to solve? So the protest this week, the organizers have been at pains to point out that they're only flying these things at about head height. They're the sort of things you might buy on the high street. But if you are conducting activism by drone more broadly, drones are very easily modifiable. For one thing, the professional level drones can go really fast, like up to 160 miles an hour. You can add on things like graffiti sprays, grabbing claws, fireworks, flamethrowers even. One climate activist in Japan landed a drone on the roof of the prime minister's office with radioactive material on it, and it lay there undiscovered for a couple of weeks. This is one of the most heavily guarded sites in Japan. So if these things are getting ever cheaper, more widely available, are infinitely modifiable, is this going to be a a means of activism and protest into an indefinite future? It would appear so. There's a couple of ways of looking at this. One is that not everybody is comfortable with the idea of using drones, especially around airports. Uh, One of the reasons that the protest this week is being done by a group called Heathrow Pause and not by Extinction Rebellion, the better known, more established climate change pressure group, is that there was internal disagreement over whether they should do this. There are legal remedies such as, you know, harsher sentences or just harsher enforcement in general. That's not much of a deterrent to people who are willing to be arrested, who are courting arrest. 
However, the idea of causing loss of human life is a much more compelling moral argument, and that is perhaps the best defense against this sort of thing. Thanks very much for coming in, Leo. Pleasure, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, so do the risks we face. But with the right context, we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity.